You are listening to a Nerd Room podcast production. We the Nerd. Bunch of nerds. Hey everyone and welcome to the Nerd Room, where we talk all things DC, Marvel, and Star Wars. The house that Batman built has put up a big shiny new movie and I am here with my man Tim to break it down. Fortunately, we don't have the whole crew because much like the Suicide Squad, not everybody made it to the end of the show. But (laughs) Timbo, my man, how are you doing today? Oh man, I am doing fantastic. I am disappointed, yes, that the dudes didn't make it past the first act, but maybe one of them will weasel this. And we'll we'll see them towards the end. Who knows? But nonetheless, I, I'm stoked to get here, and I'm stoked to be on color commentary tonight. I know it's always a little weird when I open this and you have a chair in the room. <laughs> it, it does weird me out a little bit. But uh, hey, we're talking Task Force X. It's about all things non-conventional today, and yeah, who knows what happens? Like Sanjay, I'm not surprised he's not here. He is kind of our Pete Davidson, our black guard of the podcast. But uh, <laughs> I, I was hoping Bloodsport could make it, but. Unfortunately, we'll have to uh, we'll have to march on, just like Rick Flag said. Got to get the mission done. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Maybe we'll get an encore from the boys next week, or maybe a special bonus episode drop, or something like that. But like you said, let's 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 get into this. Yeah, man. So uh, the Suicide Squad, little bit of a different release. We had like literally, I think it was a hundred percent multiplier in. COVID cases between the release of Black Widow <laughs> and the Suicide Squad. And I'm not being facetious. I actually looked at a graph and it was, if my math is right, it was a hundred time multiplier. So yep. unsurprisingly, people were a bit gun shy about going to the theaters. Uh, it had 26.5 million domestic openings, 72.2 worldwide. But the thing that Warner Brothers has really been hanging their hat on this year with their day and date theatrical releases on HBO Max is... HBO Max, and it sounds like this is the second most successful drop that they've had on that system. So it beat out Wonder Woman 84, which is a big, bright, shiny DC movie, Big beat out Godzilla vs. Kong, and it uh, it did 2.8 million views over opening weekend on HBO Max, and it's the second most viewed thing that they've dropped on there. So like I said, when we did our um, precursor episode, that was the big metric for success for me was not the box office, was going to be the critical and audience receptions and how many eyeballs they can get on this thing. And so far, it looks like there's success in that met- metric. Yeah, and I think you said this last week beautifully, was that the measurement of success maybe for this film, given the context that it's coming out in, shouldn't be the box office. It And maybe even shouldn't be HBO Max. That is a, a new platform that they are trying to push, and these movies do have an impact on that. But it really comes down to the reception of it and the discussion and the discourse online. You know, they had a lot of work to do to pivot away from some of the issues they've had in the past. And this movie was really their first big step in that direction to their new era of DC film. Oh, absolutely, man. It like it really feels like that Batman begins coming off of the back of Batman and Robin, where you gotta win your audience back. You gotta mm-hmm say you know what we understand the perception that you have of our brand but we're doing something totally different here and just kind of go with us and it it, like monday morning quarterback in this thing it really feels like 
there's a new page turned in the book for DC mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I, for one, welcome the all new, all different DC universe. And it, honestly, it's just going to get better from here. And I think having the Batman up to bat next is huge because that's yeah. something that has no previous connections and people are excited and to bring in a new fan base. Cause Mr. Pattinson brings in a massive fan base with him. So it'll be cool, man. It'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think for this film, for me, bef- before we get into any sort of the details, as we're talking high level here, this is the first DC film in a long time. That's felt like a complete movie mm-hmm. like that. It was thought out, written, shot, and edited in a way that was a holistic process, a creative process that was driven by an individual or a group of individuals being led by James Gunn. I I didn't feel like this was choppy like the other films, that it had another hand in it, that it had a a direction switch or pivot partway through production. This felt like a whole movie. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the last one that I could really say that about would be Shazam. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, that's the last one that kind of felt like it was contained and was doing the things that it itself wanted to do. Probably Aquaman too um, mm-hmm. had a bit of that as well. But uh, how did you end up watching this movie there, Timbo? Well, I I was on vacation when, yeah, I'm always on vacation, by the way, when this dropped. And I had made plans for the entirety of the back half of my vacation to watch this day or not day and date but basically on the sunday monday night when i got home on a a pov or rental whatever you want to call that vod not pov (laughs) talking arcade stuff here and i got home on sunday night and i realized with a quick google that this didn't drop on vod in canada that was an exclusive hbo max release in the u.s and unlike wonder woman 84 it didn't go out to your Apples, Amazons, these type of services. So I was left with a bit of, a, of, of an issue because I had yet to venture into a movie theater. And I questioned whether or not I could sit this out. Do the guys need me? And do I want to go into a movie theater? Because my comfort level isn't quite there yet. But I made the decision. If I'm going to do it, I might as well do it not only with a DC film, but with this film in particular, given all the buzz behind it. So masked up, got my seat, my Lysol wipes, my hand sanitizer, went to the theater. So this is the first movie I've seen in theaters since Spider-Man Far From Home. So over two years since I've sat in a theater to consume and digest an entire film. And I felt pretty good. I was a bit uncomfortable. I got up and moved after everyone had settled because there was like eight people in my 120 person theater (laughs) but we were all huddled in this one area and i was like screw this got up went to the complete opposite side felt better after that but landmark they've done an exceptional job in there they still got the barriers up they've got requests not to book seats beside each other they've even got social distance theaters if you want that if you want to go see a matinee and you had said this to me and i I noticed this right on entry it stinks like bleach in there Mm -hmm. yeah no it's (laughs) clean (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it felt it felt good. I was, like I said, a little uncomfortable still, but once I got past the first action sequence of the film, I was tuned in, ready to go, and I was ignoring COVID for the first time in a long time. That's amazing. That's awesome that it took you away, man. I'm I'm super happy, and yeah, you, you were rocking your nerd room bat shirt in yes, the theater <laughs> there. We got a selfie in the DM, so yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I too made the trip to the theater, uh, did the same landmark theater as yourself and did the Thursday preview night showing. And uh, I got to say, like, 
spoilers, but I was pretty blown away. And like my daughter was with me and like, I didn't know if she was loving the movie or not. Cause like there was times where she seemed kind of shell shocked and I was like, Oh shoot, was this just a bridge too far? But, uh, she turned to me at the end and she's like, can we just like watch the next show? And I was like, shoot, I wouldn't mind watching the very next show, but I got to work tomorrow morning. So <laughs> unfortunately that's not in the cards. And, uh, it's funny. Cause like the next day she's like, can we go see the suicide squad? I was like, well, no, my, my wife and my other daughter were on vacation. And so we were, the plan was, is that when they get back, we we're going to make our second trip to the movies to watch the film again. And, uh, that's kind of Friday. That conversation takes place. And then Saturday, we were kind of thinking about it. And like Sunday morning by 10 o'clock, we had booked tickets to go see it in the IMAX because nice. couldn't couldn't resist anymore, man. Like the movie is just that darn good. So yeah, I got two viewings under my belt and uh, that might be a testament to the type of film that Mr. Gunn delivered to us. Mm-hmm. So man, lots of speculation as to uh, how this movie was going to play out and... You know, we talked before the first um, screenings of the movie took place after that initial trailer, and you had kind of mentioned, man, I bet you a lot of these guys go down in that opening act. So kind of take me through your thoughts as we meet not only Team A of the new Suicide Squad, but also as we meet uh, Amanda Waller and what she's got going on in uh, Argus headquarters and how we see the all new, all different Task Force X being brought out into the field. What did you think of that first beat sequence and uh, all the machinations behind the scenes? Well, I, I will say that our general perception of James Gunn heavily leaning into the concept of the Suicide Squad was shown in spades in this opening act. And I think, you know, as soon as they're all marching in front of the American flag, and there's very particular individuals missing from that. I'm thinking like he's going full James Gunn on this and he's going full Suicide Squad on this. So I will say it wasn't overly surprising, but it was a great use of the concept, which I don't think was ever leveraged to, in any sort of capacity inside of the previous iteration of this group of Task Force X. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, where this movie sets its tone. It gives you a bit of the quippiness, a bit of the jokes. You've got these outlandish characters like Javelin and Mongol and Savant, characters that no one really knows. But the thing that I love about it is they stuck a lot of character actors into this. So you have this like immediate connection to your Pete Davidson's, to your Michael Rooker's, your Nathan Fillion's. Like there is this immediate identification and this immediate um, attachment to them, which makes that important for this opening sequence because it, it's it's bloody, it's gory, but I love how they open this. This is, you know, for those walking in, not knowing what this is about, this gives you a full understanding of this like bombastic film and really where Gunn's going to take it. And I, I was thrilled with the free reign he had there to do what he wanted. Like he leveraged that rated R aspect of the film not only in language but also in the visuals mm -hmm. so this 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 opening sequence does set the tone for everything because on the flip side of it like you said amanda waller is a different human being in this film than she was she loses all sort of aspects of sympathy and empathy and she becomes this like rule with an iron fist hard line person that almost turns into the villain by the end of this film 
Oh yeah, like I think she, yeah, she was the villain kind of thing. But uh, yeah, the the thing with like you were saying with Gunn's construction of this opening is it was so brilliant in that using those character actors, and I hadn't thought of that before, but what a great way to automatically get your audience to buy in to checking these guys out and seeing what they're all about and what kind of journey they're going to go on. And by having these name brand character actors, you kind of think that they're going to stick around because that's what yeah. we're used to. We're used to a guy like Pete Davidson being through the entirety of a movie. And so you, you start this off, and it's just such efficient storytelling because within 15, 20 minutes, he totally sets up what the concept of the Suicide Squad is, who Amanda Waller is, how mm -hmm. much of a badass she is, how ruthless she is. And, um, you know, that beat scene kind of segues into the fact that she sacrificed that entire group, including... You know, the suggestion is, at least to me, that like Harley Quinn and Rick Flagg were disposable in the eyes of Amanda Waller so that you can land your second group unnoticed on a different part of the island of Corte Maltese. So I thought that was pretty brilliant and just just the efficiency of it. Like, and yeah. the little nods, like Savant killing the bird because his last appearance, I think, was in Gail Simone's Birds of Prey run. And with the canary there coming to <laughs> getting smashed by the ball. And then when you see what the brain bombs are all about, because Amanda Waller decides to off him with his, and they just use his brain chunks to do the opening credits. And the black and the little canary comes down and starts eating them. Like just brilliant. Like what a filmmaker to be able to set all of this stuff up. You completely understand it. You buy in. And you have a bunch of Easter eggs in there for the fans. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, RIP to Jai Courtney, man. Like I uh, I thought Boomer would go down, but just not in the opening scene of the movie. Well, and it's interesting too when you say the how expendable potentially Harley Quinn and Rick Flagg were in that opening sequence. And we all knew that Harley Quinn, she's a name brand, she's a, she's a huge character in the DC film universe. And we probably all had a good idea that she wasn't going anywhere. But it was interesting and the debate kind of rages on a bit. Is this a sequel? Is it a reboot? I personally would call it both, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's it's definitely a sequel to that original Suicide Squad film, but they go about it in a certain way where they basically wipe, wipe the slate clean while also not destroying the previous film, not erasing it completely. So they honor characters like Boomerang or Captain Boomerang, Rick Flagg, these types, even Viola Davis in that role of Amanda Waller, they honor those pieces of it and usher in a new era in a true Suicide Squad fashion. So, like, to me, it's both. It's it's not one or the other. No, totally. Well, and as the movie plays out, um, they use it to their advantage where you get to see what Harley Quinn's all about and where she's at via her interactions with Boomerang. And then they leverage that time that they spent together in the first movie between her and Rick Flagg into making their story and where Rick Flagg's journey goes uh, that much more poignant by the time you get there. So it, mm -hmm. it was meaningful. Like, yeah, efficient is probably the best word I can use for that yeah. opening. And Economic, so, yeah, I yeah, love that. <laughs> yeah, economic storytelling at its finest. So we've had our team aid dispatched and um, taken off the board, but team two comes up onto the beach. What did you think of the introduction of team two coming out right away? Like I loved that 
this was this simultaneous breach of the island and that she had set up the first team as a distraction as opposed to these guys going in to clean up from a botched mission or something of that nature. But uh, we meet Team 2. We start going through these introductions. We find out what their mission is all about. Uh, what did you think of these members of Team 2? Why don't you take me through Polka Dot Man and the Peacemaker? Peacemaker was my favorite character in this film. And, you know, we're full spoilers and all that, guys. But his abrupt turn towards mm-hmm. the end, it hit me in a weird way. And we'll get into that later. But everything that John Cena does in this film, I absolutely love. Like, I am up here in anticipation of that Peacemaker show and what they can do with that. Like, the the way that he was able to just kind of chew dialogue on the screen, he was outlandish, and he was a force to be reckoned with. Him and Bloodsport's chemistry was awesome. I love the give and take there, this constant one-upsmanship between the two of them. It created it's just this great dynamic inside of the Suicide Squad. And even introducing them as basically the same character mm-hmm. was hilarious, the way they brought that up. Polka Dot Man, interesting character. He felt like a a B-Squad, like he should have been on the first beach getting killed. Mm-hmm. But I like that they brought him into the A-Squad, that they brought him into this piece and kept him throughout the film because he created an interesting dynamic, right? All the other characters in there, your Harley Quinn, Rick Flag, Peacemaker, they all have a certain air to them of almost that they are untouchable to a degree where he felt expendable, but also he had kind of this like really weird story with his mom that kept showing up through the film and was this weird thread that kind of abruptly took you out of your seat. But it was amongst a a piece that James Gunn was putting together that every character had these weird moments and it all just kind of worked for some reason. Polka Dot Man shouldn't work, but it worked for me. I like the character. I like the actor in there. And he again played a an interesting role amongst your A team when he probably shouldn't have been there. Yeah. Well, and ironically, like he's like the powerhouse of the mm-hmm. of that second team when when we get to see him shine at the end. And you know, I'll, I'll take it to kind of the next couple characters that land on that beach. We have King Shark, who's everybody's new favorite anthropomorphic <laughs> uh, CGI character here. But uh, who would have thought like this killer shark that they could take his character and like King Shark, he's not really like that in the comics, but I like that they made him kind of innocent and cutesy and just, it it, it just eating people is his natural thing. Like he's just hungry and that's what he has a taste for. So he eats people, but he doesn't mean to. And um, we get to have him beautifully realized by Sylvester Stallone and what an inspired Mm -hmm. piece of casting that is. And, you know, once again, like they were astute enough to think like we'll bring that little bit of familiarity because everybody knows Sly's voice. And so you kind of warm to this <laughs> this doe-eyed shark pretty quickly. And another way that you do that is through Ratcatcher 2. Yeah. She was probably my favorite character in this movie. Like, I just fell in love with this gal. Um, and, you know, she's she's one of those actresses that it's like they didn't go out and cast a star in this role. But I certainly think that they're in the throes of making one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, she was definitely the heart of the movie and she held oh, her yeah. own in acting against, you know, a, a big personality like John Cena or a, an accomplished and very refined actor in Idris Elba. 
and, and what a wonderful story. She just had this sweetness and innocence to her. And they played that so well in that she's almost like a victim in the machinations mm-hmm. of Amanda Waller, but she doesn't lose her sincerity and that she's the one that gets King Shark on side by just believing in him a little bit. And that comes to her because we get to meet her father later on and the lessons that he instilled on her despite his challenges and his problems. And like she had just such a robust story told in such an economic manner. Like you have this flashback and you totally understand it and you understand why her father, the original rat catcher, he had issues in his life, but he wasn't really a villain either. And it's honestly, it's probably the first time that you see somebody die from drug use in a movie that they're presented as sympathetic and as a victim of the circumstances that they find themselves in, as opposed to uh, they they brought this on themselves and mm-hmm. they're the ones that did this to their child. Like, it wasn't that at all. It was it was amazing. So I really loved her. And then it, it really goes to to show again where it comes into casting. You got Taika Waititi playing her father, right? Mm-hmm. So someone that you immediately attach yourself to because of previous roles and him being a face of a Marvel franchise and also not not for that aspect of being part of Marvel, but you immediately see this guy, right? And so you can relate to him. It's so important. And like you said, Ratcatcher 2 being someone that isn't your Cena or Aegis Elbor or Margot Robbie, right? You've surrounded her with high caliber actors and actresses and putting her in there and making her the heart and soul. Like that, that's not an obvious choice in there. It's not an obvious character, an individual that controls rats to be the heart and soul of this. But like you said, there's a beautiful arc woven through this that takes place throughout the whole movie and it builds and builds that sympathy, that emotional attachment, which was missing from the previous iteration of this team was a, a solid audience connection to all of the characters. This is what Gunn does so well in here with all these characters we've talked about is even though it's an ensemble, each character has a moment to develop that is pulled through as an individual narrative thread that all comes together at the end. And so you immediately have this connection to these characters. And when people start dying or maybe could die, and that's another thing James Gunn leverages is I don't know by the, by the third act, who's going to live and who's going to die. Like it's, it's all up in the air. And some of the, the twists and the turns on that aspect, I was like, Whoa, like they went there. And like only person I thought was, unkillable was harley quinn everyone else to me was on the table could die yeah and i guess she was on the table too and there's like you you read some of the the journeys that the production took and you know the original version of the film he had Ratcatcher 2 dying but he thought it was just too heartbreaking for the audience that mm-hmm. he, he couldn't do that to the audience and then yeah harley was on the table he said warner brothers said yeah do whatever you want to do with wow. whoever you want to do it with <laughs> and uh you know, he ended up falling in love with Margot Robbie and what she brings to the table as an actress. So he kept her around. But uh, the star of our movie ended up being Troy's boy, Idris Elba, Bloodsport. Bit of a non-conventional choice of character. Uh, Idris is certainly a star, but a bit of a non-conventional choice of a character to have front in your multi-million dollar superhero franchise. But man, 
I friggin' loved Bloodsport. And by the end of this thing, I couldn't imagine anybody else in the role. No. He, he did something special there because, you know, there's all this conjecture and discussion, right? And the, the comparing it to Will Smith and Deadshot and all these type things, right? And it was clear that it was a break from from that character. But the the things that Idris Elba does in here that I think is is great is he has this awesome balance of the hardline killer, the guy that can execute the banter with John Cena, which is some of your more comedic ends of it, but also can play the emotional side with Ratcatcher 2 and his daughter. Mm-hmm. So he has this like full spectrum of a character that's not one-dimensional, that's not just a killer, but it's also not like this, you know, we're making him sympathetic because we need a sympathetic character in there. He has like this natural arc. Again, I come back to this, and it comes back to the writing on how good it is. It's all believable. It's not like he has this instinct of a killer but a heart of gold, right? He's he's something more. He's more of a, of a wide and broad spectrum of a character that I can't quite put my finger on exactly what the nuance of it is, but to me it's all believable, this kind of natural arc he goes on throughout this. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, again, it's a, it's a great actor in this role, but I lose Idris Elba into Bloodsport and the character he's playing as we go through this film. Yeah, for me, it was there was a couple interesting uh, reflections in this because I know the initial word was that he was playing Deadshot, and you kind of see some of these similarities between Bloodsport's character and Deadshot's, particularly in the leveraging of his daughter by Amanda Waller. Mm-hmm. But I love that they were astute enough to say, okay, this exists. It's not really a thing from the comics. In the comics, he has the twin brother, who gets killed, and that's why he makes some poor decisions and ends himself on the wrong side of the law. But um, in this, it was a daughter. So it kind of had me wondering, like, did they just kind of massage the Deadshot story when Will Smith couldn't come back? Mm. But I thought they did such an amazing job to saying, yeah, it's a guy who shoots guns who has a daughter. But this father-daughter relationship is not the one at all that you saw in the previous movie. No. Because where Will Smith was this nurturing, loving dad that would do anything for his daughter, Idris Elba was also a loving dad who would do anything for his daughter, but they weren't nurturing at all. And they had this antagonistic relationship, but it felt very real. And you could see why this girl would be disappointed and be throwing stuff back at her dad. And you could see um, where the dad would be frustrated in having this daughter that he can't raise because he's on the inside of this institution. And Amanda Waller using that against both of them, right? Not caring about the family, not caring about the daughter. And I thought they did a great job of building Argus's reaction to that and planting mm-hmm. the seeds for them turning against her. So that wasn't abrupt either because they keep going back to the, like, yeah, you're, you're kind of offside here. Yeah. So I really liked that. And I loved that he didn't have some kind of catalyst moment for his change of heart and that mm-hmm. um, th- there wasn't some aha kind of rainbow thing that happens with him. They built it from the outset that, him and Peacemaker are the same, the exact same kind of guy with the exact same life experiences. The difference is, is that Bloodsport is a fundamentally good person inside that was brought up to do wrong things. 
and the peacemaker is a fundamentally bad person inside mm-hmm. who was brought up to do wrong things and embraces that. So I thought that was pretty cool. And like, man, if you told me two years ago that you were going to be doing a Suicide Squad movie and we saw today that one of the ideas was to have Deathstroke in that blood sport role. And if I'd be like, Carlos would be sitting here saying like, no, I'm so glad that they didn't put Deathstroke in this movie and went with Bloodsport and the Peacemaker. Like I would have called you a liar, but man, it, like it was just done so perfectly and written so well. Like I can't imagine them going with any other dynamic. No, it's the, that dynamic and that chemistry, like I said, between Cena and Idris Elba really makes that. And I love your comments too, that they're basically, you know, different sides of the same coin mm-hmm. and they're your yin and yang. They're your, your angel, your devil. And, they by the time you get to the end you're kind of at the same spot but then they diverge in a, in a way that i think the story swerves the audience at mm-hmm. least it did me oh yeah like you uh, you didn't know where it was going as they start dealing with kind of the fallout and the cordo maltese so cordo maltese everybody was introduced to this island way back in 1989 when vicky vale was regaling uh, michael <laughs> keaton bruce wayne about her time as a photojournalist there during, I guess, the rise of the uh, the family that was running the place. And then in the meantime, there's been a, uh, a hostile rebellion and the army has taken over. So what did you think of this plot to have this military dictatorship island taking place and that these guys inherit the thinker? And with the unrest in the Court of Maltese, we meet this rebel group. And then Harley Quinn getting stuck in the middle of this thing, and we find her in a whole new role. What did you think of our our kind of plot setup for the mission that the Suicide Squad is going on? Well, this this is the only part of the film that I didn't love. I I found that the the setup, and I understand what we're getting at, right? I understand the need for this style of film to have this sort of Almost, I'm not going to call it a comic book trope, but it, it just feels just a little bit predictable as you've got almost the mustache twirling. And I don't know if this is on purpose that you have these very particular, these generals. These, it, it just felt a little bit like we've seen this before. Mm-hmm. But I, I get into this film and I'm like, okay, I'm going to accept this for what it is, right? We don't have time to develop a, a robust, crazy sort of deep villain. And I don't think we need that for this, right? You're working with anti-heroes, you're working with villains, and you have this ensemble cast that you need to focus towards to get that emotional connection for the end to make sense and for the end to matter. So these guys, I'm there with it. I'm rolling with it, sure. The the whole Starro thing, and we'll get into that, it's, it's a bit whack and it's a bit crazy, but it works for some reason. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's the construction of the film in that sense that this is probably the most comic book looking film that I've seen in a very, very long time. Like the structure of it, the transitions, the non-linear storytelling. That to me is what helps some of the clunky parts here with this kind of, I guess, rotating cast of presidents and generals. And as we're passing things down as people were being killed. And I like the insertion of Harley Quinn here as a bit of an anomaly in all of this, because to me, she elevates a lot of that more clunkier, this is our villain type stuff, right? Where mm-hmm. she's kind of being interwoven into that and bringing a real bright spot. 
and a way for her kind of outlandish attitude and approach to being part of Task Force X is really amplified by kind of these random goons that she goes up against. And it gives her another great solo fighting sequence in the hallways and all that, like we saw in Birds of Prey. So I think it all works. It's of a piece. And yeah, it's maybe the weaker part, but I don't think it's a detriment to the film. It kind of sticks out a little bit to me, but eventually it gets pushed so far down that you kind of ignore it and just run with the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it it worked because it, it took me back to like the old Dirty Dozen films, which the Suicide Squad is kind of based on to some extent or vice versa. But um, yeah, I like the the kind of military dictatorship and the anti-American sentiment. And uh, I kind of like them playing with the, the super weapon idea and whatnot. And I thought it was interesting how they had Harley Quinn positioned as a potential um, first lady of the court of Maltese <laughs> because she represented anti-American fervor and, and, and thought processes. But uh, yeah, that was pretty neat. And I liked that they gave her a really cool little arc in where she asserts herself as an independent woman and yep. she spends time with this fella because she wants to and she finds him attractive. And then she's like, he starts to unveil a little bit more of his personality and she's like, nope, nope, yeah. this this is not the type of girl I am. You're not taking advantage of me. And what a brilliant way of setting up like just a fierce 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 action sequence with harley quinn like i love the stuff in birds of prey but this was next level like yes it was it it was gruesome and bloody and brutal but uh oh so entertaining and then when she gets the javelin that she's bequeathed like another amazing thing that they play with where they have the the javelin character giving her his weapon and then that she actually takes that seriously because that's what Harley Quinn would do. Would be like, God will tell me what to do with this javelin. And it ends up coming into play in the end of the movie. And it's a MacGuffin without needing to be a MacGuffin kind of thing. And yeah. well, it's, it's something to keep track of throughout the film too. It's kind of yeah. funny because she keeps stumbling upon it, which I really liked. And mm-hmm. Marco Robbie's execution of this character, just the, the nuances of her facial expressions alone are worth the price of entry. Like she is so good. And you know, when she turns it on, when she's kind of hung up and they're torturing her a little bit there and she goes like full, like demon Harley Quinn, it's like, Whoa. And then onto the other side and she's skipping through and it's, it's such a a great character. And I've loved seeing her develop throughout all of these little movies that not little, but all of these movies that she has played a big part in. But this one, I don't know. There's something special about this one. She really stood out here for me. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, she she thrived in this movie, and it sounds like she wants to work with James Gunn like it's nobody's business, and James Gunn wants to work with her again. Uh, so yeah, like I don't think anybody would complain if there's a Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey two, or if there's a Gotham City Sirens movie, or just a a Harley Quinn movie. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. that he ends up directing, so that would be pretty cool. Um, and here we meet Starro the Conqueror. So you had kind of touched <laughs> on him a little bit. But, you know, for such a crazy, outlandish, flamboyant villain or entity, uh, he's probably one of the most important characters in all of comic books. 
because Star Wars The Conqueror, his first appearance is also the first time that a Justice League ever came together mm. to battle a single enemy. So the first appearance of the quote-unquote Justice League was in an issue of The Brave and the Bold, which Star of the Conqueror came to take over the Earth, and that formed the Justice League. But not only was Star of the Conqueror important for the foundation of the DC Universe and the Justice League, that issue inspired <laughs> Mr. Goodman, who was running Marvel Comics at the time, to say to a young Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, I want that. Like, this is where we need to take our comics, and these are the types of stories we have to tell. And Star of the Conqueror and that issue of Brave and the Bold was the direct catalyst for them writing the Fantastic Four Ooh. and launching Marvel Comics into being a thing. So, yeah, this wacky purple alien starfish is arguably, or maybe inarguably, the most important comic book character of all time. And man, God bless James Gunn for deciding to use him in a movie. Like, never in a million years would I have thought that it would be something I would see, A, B, that would be a good idea, or C, that anybody could make work. But holy smokes, like, James Gunn crushed it with using Starro. Like, it's one thing to say, I want to use Starro in a movie, but it's a whole nother thing to be able to use him as effectively as he did in this movie. This is absurd. Oh, I just 100%. want to put that out there. Absurd that this actually worked in this film. Imagine James Gunn. He's already pitched to WB. I'm going to bring in Peacemaker. I'm going to bring in Bloodsport. They're going to be my headliners next to Harley Quinn. They're going to be paired with Polka Dot Man. But I also want to use this other cast of characters, Javelin, Mongol, all this. But... Don't you guys worry. I've got the villain. Okay, great, James Gunn. It's got to be someone huge. Star of the Conqueror he comes back with. Like, <laughs> there, there's something there about the way he must have pitched this because on paper, this is ridiculous and doesn't work. But for some reason, and I don't know if it's the build, the character connection, but once you get to this point, you're like, yeah, bring it on. I want to see this giant freaking starfish wandering through this random city, spitting out other starfish. And it it's, it's so crazy that at this point as an audience member and as someone that consumes all this stuff, I've bought right into this. I don't know why either, right? It's And it comes down to, I think, the execution of it. Yeah. But... Like, you go back to other mindless and literally faceless villains at times that we do see with the hordes in that. But it and that becomes, again, like a trope. It becomes easy. It becomes a piece of a book or of a movie so that your your heroes can just kill at will. But this this is crazy. Mm -hmm. But I, I loved every second of them fighting Starro. Like I don't, I and I to be the to be honest with you, I do not know why. But yeah, it, it it does it. Well, and they built he built it so subtly, right? And it made it plausible that like this this thing came to Earth during the space race, and American astronauts latched onto it, and he fit in a box at the time, and they had this devil may care attitude about it, 
and they wanted to experiment on it and experiment on humans with it because they saw what happened to their astronauts. So they decided to farm it out to the Cordo Maltese where they could go about their business doing this. And he puts in the effort and the time to make this plausible. They set up the Nazi scientist thing. So it's like, okay, you kind of see the mindset behind the people that are working on Starro as he gets bigger and bigger because he's feeding on all these political dissidents. And then they pay it off with this kaiju at the end. Like they earn kaiju Starro at the end of the movie. And there's so few filmmakers that would be astute enough to do that, right? Like it's... It's like, yeah, movie, 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 stuff I want to do, stuff I want to blow up, and then here's your big bad monster that I'll give you an exposition dump as to how and why he came about. And off you go type of thing. So, yeah, man, props to James Gunn for being able to make Starro something to be embraced as your Mm -hmm. final villain. But as we meet Starro in his habitat in Jotunheim, um, and shout out to James Gunn for the transitions in this movie, which were amazing. I lo- absolutely love them. Like so comic book ass. Like it's so cool the way that they use the, the swipes and that of just whatever it was sticks at one point, smoke that really cool. The, the way they looked at the busted up building. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. No, that was amazing. But as we get into Jotunheim, it sets up a conflict with a character that we've known and we've grown to love over the course of the movie and John Cena's peacemaker. Like he's, he's funny. He's aloof. He has this very misguided worldview. And then a character that we met in the first movie in Rick flag that man, halfway through this movie, I was in love with Rick flag and not just mm-hmm. cause Joel Kinnaman is his like sexy man, but like he was just so cool. Like he was a completely different character over the course of this film. And he, he was complex because he was a good soldier wanting to finish a mission. But at the same time, he was a good man wanting to do the right and humane things with helping out the gorillas and the rebels in the quarter Maltese and taking those extra steps to rescue Harley Quinn. And we get our turn that you alluded to at the beginning of the movie. And I think the reason that this turn works so well is because you've built these two characters out where you have Rick Flagg, who is a good person and a dedicated soldier uh, who feels betrayed by his country and wants to expose their secrets because it's the right thing to do. And then you have Peacemaker, who's so twisted in his worldview, who's been told if this gets out, it'll be detrimental to America and it might cause a war. And they end up getting into this epic battle with each other. And we end up having Rick Flagg dying. And man, it broke my heart both times. Like, yeah, and excuse it, the pun if you've seen the movie. But. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 like I said at the start, it was very abrupt to me. Like, I, I see and they did the work in the storytelling to get Peacemaker, John Cena, to this point in the film. But it was still such a crazy twist. And the fact that they not only built this Cena twist, this peacemaker twist, but they also latched on the side of it, the death of Rick Flagg. And so it only served to really accentuate the degree of the turn that peacemaker went on. Right. He, in a moment flipped from a kind of lovable 
piece of this film to like a true villain, mm-hmm. right? Like you almost like immediately fall out of love with this character. And that, that broke my heart yeah. is that in this movie, as I'm sitting there, I took a step back and I was like, I just went from loving John Cena to not liking this character anymore. Yeah. And it's, that's, it's hard to not like John Cena, but he acted the hell out of this because he took his facial expressions once he has the the bucket on his head off that if you watch that closely everything changes mm-hmm. he loses the smile the eyes go down they frame him from above a lot because he's looking through his eyebrows and so they do a lot of work in there and just how they frame everything and just the brutalness of the fight yeah the, the thing that i quote unquote liked about it was that it kept in character like mm-hmm. him doing what he did stayed true to the fundamental core of what they established Peacemaker is all about in this movie. When he tells you what he'd do to an island at the outset of the film, <laughs> it sets you up for him being willing to kill Rick Flag. And I loved the way he he didn't hate Rick Flag, but he had a mission to do because he felt that that was the right mm-hmm. thing to do. And he's paying him compliments. He's like, I will secure that drive, even if it means killing an American hero like yourself. And I was, I thought that that was, that was amazing. And we don't get to see characters fleshed out like that. And where you hate their action, but they took the time to have you appreciate and uh, to understand the why, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. And then when he goes and he's confronting uh rat catcher and he's willing to kill her he says it's because i'm thorough and it's like well they've established that already like they have the action sequence in the gorilla camp which is probably one of the most entertaining sequences oh, so ever until you find out that they're actually the good guys and you're like oh you guys really killed all these dudes but um yeah i i thought they just did such a great job with that piece Mm-hmm. And then paying off with Bloodsport right after that. Yeah, and to that the action sequence that you mentioned there with the the rebel group, the guerrilla group, this connects very well to that, this mm-hmm. end scene, right? Because you have Bloodsport and Peacemaker. It's almost like a way to to show, not tell, to show how good these guys are. You get a full spectrum of their capabilities, all the weapons they use, and it's done a bit more lightheartedly. And then you get to this end sequence where you've seen the pivot and you have them basically facing each other, right? Two sides of the, or two different sides of the same coin. And it even plays into the bullet thing, which I love. And the person that's in the middle is your heart and soul of this film in Retcatcher 2. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're moving all of these pieces, Gun in the writing is moving all of these pieces around in the background. And once you get to these climax sequences, you're fully invested in all the characters involved. 100%. And that, that's so hard to do with wild-ass characters. Like, John Cena, he's, he's a wrestler. He's a good actor. I like him. But he's strutting around in this red, white, and blue with the urinal thing on his head. But it, it, it's working for me. You've got, like I said before, a girl that controls rats. I hate rats. I hate rodents. But I find myself endeared to this character. And you've got Bloodsport, who has, you know, I think grown on me as the film has gone. 
and you have this this fantastic standoff well you've got starro <laughs> you know what i mean yeah like, it, it's it's just a it's just a wonderful piece of show that it, it to me a lot of this comes down to the execution and fundamentally the writing mm-hmm. in all of this it's so important yeah no for sure and they set up their end piece so well because they have the peacemaker and they take you from him doing anything it takes to complete his mission up to and including killing Rick flag uh, and getting rid of any witnesses, regardless of the journey that he's been on with them to then blood sport who has taken on that role as the leader of this group of people, him kind of watching the destruction and they do a very subtle thing where they show the little girl who's lost in the chaos there and he's been told, your mission is done. Bring me that disk drive and we'll get you out of there. That's the easy play for him and that is his mission. But because he's a fundamentally good person, as opposed to the peacemaker, he decides to turn around, willing to sacrifice his life, not only by virtue of the threat, but because Amanda Waller says that she's going to kill him. And Viola <laughs> Davis does an incredible oh. job acting on the other side of that microphone. She is next level in this like i'm scared of her and i'm gonna compliment her because i don't want her coming after me yeah oh yeah she's like one of the scariest comic book villains we've ever seen (laughs) unbelievable unbelievable and you know you you take her character that it works in in suicide squad but here it's like ratcheted up and it's just her delivery right Mm mm-hmm she is such a great actress and I can't imagine anyone else in this role where, yeah, you have this group of villains that you're more connected to. And she is like, I think she was meant to be the villain in suicide squad. She is the villain in the suicide squad. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I loved the turn of her team kind of thing because they're seeing the chaos and you, you know, blood sports won everybody over. Mm-hmm. everybody so the audience the the team on the ground and and i loved how he was enough to inspire the rest of the survivors of task force x to take on Starro, regardless of the odds being against them right like they have a bunch of rats they have harley quinn and a javelin they have blood sports weapons and the polka dot man and they don't know what he's going to be capable of doing. Oh, and King Shark. How can I mm-hmm. f- forget? But uh, yeah, like this this end battle, I loved how uh, concise it was. It didn't go on for too long. Mm-hmm. And your heroes get kind of beaten up just enough, but we get a really cool showcase of all their powers to the max, right? Like you get to see Bloodsport pull all his toys out of his like portals that he uses. Um, you get to see Harley Quinn finally pay off the javelin and the polka dot man making the ultimate sacrifice. I know some people really hated this and felt it was excessive, but I kind of, I kind of think he got taken off the board because if he was able to persist, he probably could have taken down Starro himself, right? Mm -hmm. Because he shaves off one of the ends of, of the star. So I, I wonder if that's not why they killed him off type of thing. But, man, like, these characters kind of working in concert to take down this massive threat, beautifully well done and paid off perfectly. And it was just, it had such poetry to it. 
mm-hmm. with like Harley jumping into the eye and the rats coming in there. And yeah, it was just cool. Did the ending work for you as much as it did for me with the big kaiju battle? Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, I think that the most important part about it is that, like you said, it doesn't go on for too long. Mm-hmm. It's not a half an hour sequence in the film. They get to an end point relatively quickly. And like we've been saying, economically. And I think the thing I liked about Polka Dot Man being taken off the board is it continued to show that there are stakes in this film. I think the concept of the Suicide Squad loses all meaning when you remove the stakes. I didn't expect Rick Flag to die. I didn't expect Polka Dot Man. I didn't expect even, and I guess we'll talk about the Stinger, but you know, Cena at one point maybe being taken off the board. Like, this is leaving you in a space where it's like anyone is out there, which to me elevates the consequences of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so that brings a new element, which we don't generally get in comic book movies, right? We're so focused or there are companies are so focused on building franchises that a lot of characters get this bubble put around them where they can't be killed unless you're in your epic finales, like your end game style where they need to show consequences. Infinity War took 23 movies to demonstrate true consequences for our heroes. And this movie does it tenfold and you end up with a group of misfits at the end that you're likely going to continue with maybe in some capacity, whether it's another squad film or whether it's, in their own things we're getting peacemaker so that's what i liked about it is is that there's consequences it was economic and it was fun i think that's one thing that we have to highlight too this film is fun it is gratuitous with the violence which has my stomach turning sometimes but the well-placed and consistent (laughs) f-bombs i'm loving man i love the language yes it, it can be maybe a bit much for some individuals, but if that's not your cup of tea, that's that's fine. This movie takes that, runs with it. I enjoy it. And all in all, man, it's a crazy, wild, audacious film, and you need a sequence like this at the end. Anything less than this, and I think you, you take away from the film. Yeah, no, totally. And like you talk about with everything being up in the air still, when Harley's in the eye of Starro, I thought, they might kill her off there that she mm-hmm. drowns and makes kind of the ultimate sacrifice to bring the rats in there because they had done such a good job of saying like, yeah, no, this isn't your conventional superhero or even just like action movie where your heroes are untouchable. Like yeah. it's conceivable that she's going to die mm-hmm. in this spot, which is pretty impressive that they got there. So yes. And you touch on that stinger. So we have John Cena's peacemaker having been yarded out of there and he's in a, an American hospital and obviously being groomed for um, bigger, badder things under Amanda Waller's wing. But man, like kind of take me through, now that you've been through the Suicide Squad, what do you want to see in the future? Like Peacemaker is going to be that first step. What do you want to see out of that? And what do you want to see from the rest of the squad or where they take this franchise? Well, I'm excited about the Peacemaker because... As I'm sitting through the, the credits and all that, I'm thinking, okay, Peacemaker must be a prequel. Mm-hmm. And we probably are going to get seeds of that. We're probably going to get flashbacks and all that that kind of fleshes out a bit of his character building into that film and also what he's doing after because he clearly sets up with It's Argus, right? Yeah. Um, particularly there's two individuals. I think one is James Gunn's partner, actually, the, the girl, mm-hmm. and this other dude that are going to maybe be the people that are 
the, the shepherds to John Cena's sheep as he's running around saving the world or saving America in outlandish ways. What I want from Peacemaker is to keep consistent. HBO Max show, let this be of a piece of the Suicide Squad. There's got to be the gore, the swearing. You can't lose that nuance of that character trying to attract a a broader audience. Mm-hmm. You know, this film embraced that. The show has to embrace that too. I want more of John Cena as well. I want more of the character in in that that sort of comedic but also serious but also a bit devilish mm-hmm. i think we need to explore all of that and how that character can you know become someone that you're so in tune and enthralled with to someone that you absolutely don't have any like for in a moment so i, I want to see more of that and then for the squad I, I think there's there's space here to do another suicide squad i think you have to take it in a different direction and you know, I think maybe like a James Gunn could do this, but read the this thing with the Suicide Squad is you can't just redo the previous film. You gotta change, escalate, and do something different. So I don't know exactly where I'd want it to go, but I do know it's gotta go in a pretty outlandishly different direction to make it feel different and as part of a growth branch of the Suicide Squad. So I don't I don't know if you need another Suicide Squad, like a Bloodsport film would be cool. And you could leverage maybe Harley Quinn in there a little bit to to break off of that. I don't know. I, 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 I'm excited, though, that there's this type of reception and, and that WB has landed with a few characters and it already made the decision to, to spin off a TV series out of this. So I, I think that they've... And James Gunn's done this in all of his movies. He always leaves his characters in a spot where the next creative can pluck them out and run with them. They're mm-hmm. not tied up in some crazy way that makes it complicated you have to back explain think thor at the end of age of ultron right they had to have a an exposition dump at the start of ragnarok to explain away the position they left him in in age of ultron they don't do that with any of the characters here and so the door is wide open and that that really excites me yeah no i'm on the same page like i'm really looking forward to peacemaker and yeah i, I Man, I love Bloodsport so much. I hope that they do something else with him. But I kind of liked how he won mm-hmm. against the villain in Amanda Waller at the end of the movie. So I don't necessarily want to see him back in a Suicide Squad type setting. But if they do something like a Secret Six or mm-hmm. like, who knows? Like if Affleck's Batman is back, like doing a Batman and the Outsiders with a Bloodsport type character in there could be wicked. And mm-hmm. he's talked about having a rematch at Superman or... Who knows? There's any number of things or even just like a bit of HBO Max stuff. Like they told some interesting stories with the character about him being in uh, like suicide slum in Metropolis and whatnot. So maybe he just becomes a different type of hero in that setting and you do a four or six episode thing there. But yeah, like, and as far as HBO Max keeping the tone and tenor and um, uh, taking the risks that the movie did, like I think you're safe based on the Watchmen, like if the, yeah. <laughs> the Dr. Manhattan's dong was in that, then I, I think the Peacemaker will be able to kill some folks in this. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, man, the future is bright. Like this. So bright. Uh, this really, really sold me. Like uh, they've talked about the concept of what the DC universe is going to be going forward with smaller connections, but allowing a bit more, uh filmmaker freedom and if this is what we get then so be it like 
like I kind of said with the Deathstroke example, like you think you want something because you've enjoyed that in the comic books and that's something that's appealed to you. But until you actually get to see the final product that one of these guys brings to screen and you get to judge the art for what it is, you don't know. Like if you had put two pieces of paper in front of me and said, do you want this Deathstroke Suicide Squad movie or do you want the Bloodsport Suicide Squad movie? 110% of the time, I take the Deathstroke mm-hmm. one, not ever knowing that this Bloodsport-led Suicide Squad movie would be one of my favorite films in the genre. Like, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy to see kind of where things go, and I, I like the new mindset of um, the DC film silo within Warner Brothers Pictures, and I think they've learned some lessons from years gone by. So, yeah, man, the future is bright. I, I agree with James Gunn in that, they won't all be diamonds. You, We will get some One Roman 84s going forward, but uh, we'll also get some The Suicide Squads, and I think that's a, that's a price worth paying to get those special all-timer films. If you got to take a few L's, so be it. It, it is what it is. <laughs> it's not a competition for me, so... No, and it, yeah. and it adds to the diversity of film that we're getting at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Where Marvel's consistent. They're delivering. They're telling this grand story. But now we're getting more comic book movie films that are telling different and crazy and confined and connected. And also we're going to get Black Adam and the Batman and all this. And I, I'd like to look back and step in and consume the genre as opposed to DC Marvel. Like, you yeah. know, we've done it in the past. I've done it in the past where you, you put up these boundaries and you put up this almost competition. And the competition is great because it, it breeds that, that inherent fire to do more, to do better, to escalate. But when we step back and look at the genre itself as a whole, like this is unbelievable, everything that we're getting. And DC has found its, its space for now. And that's creating these new and different and diverse characters and bringing the next thing to the screen, which I love. Like we've talked about the Flash a lot, Black Adam, the Suicides. We've we've got it all in front of us. And then we're going to go back and get things like the Batman. We had 184 in your pillar characters. But the, the thing that this shows is, one, nothing is off the table. And two, all characters are there to be adapted. And I, I say that very specifically adapted because like you, you pointed out the character that we know in the comic book might not be necessarily what translates best on the screen and what fits the story, because mm-hmm. that's what makes this film work is the writing and the story, the characters. Yes. They become recognizable. They could become endearing, but it's really about the story and who embodies the actor that embodies it and portrays that, that makes this, a film it's it's just it's just so great and i'm so excited to see what's on the horizon here and like you mentioned the fact that the batman is next come on <laughs> I, I know man it's crazy absolutely crazy the yeah the next two projects out of the gate are the peacemaker and the batman like mm-hmm. it's awesome so man it's time for that letter grade time for the suicide squad Ah, this 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 is a tough one. I've been literally thinking about this since the moment I sat in my car as to what this was. When I exited the theater, I thought to myself, where do I want to put this? Because, like I said, it's audacious, it's exciting, but it's not perfect, right? 
but there's nothing specific I can say that I would change or that I would have liked to see done differently. Like it all works. And so because of that, I'm, I'm struggling between a B plus and an A minus, if I'm being completely honest with you. And when I stack it up inside of the genre, if we're looking at the genre as a whole, I'm going to give this a B plus. I might, I might look back and regret that because I've just spent the last hour gushing about this film. But when I compare it to some of the other genre films, my personal enjoyability level isn't as high as some others. And so I might have some personal bias into that. So to me, it's somewhere between a B plus, A minus, and I'll, I'll, I'll land on a B plus for now. Yeah, for me, I'm kind of on the same page in that I enjoyed everything about this movie from beginning to end. And it was that second viewing that really sold me in that I was never, ever bored. I was never, ever looking at my watch. Mm-hmm. I was never, ever hoping for the next action sequence to kick in because I loved all of it. Like the dialogue was great when there wasn't flashy stuff happening on the screen. The cinematography was beautiful. It's well shot and there's interesting things happening all over the place and it never, ever dragged. So like, honestly, outside of Batman having a cameo somewhere to give it that extra little nudge, uh, it's a solid A for me. Like there's, like you said, there's nothing I would change in the movie and yeah, the only thing that would it have to do to earn a A plus would be a cameo that wouldn't fit, and I don't know where you'd put it anyways. But uh, that's that's my metric, and I'm gonna stick to it. So, um, yeah, man, solid A. It's I'm not one for kind of ranking movies or whatever, but it's definitely amongst my very favorites within the DC universe, and quite frankly, within the genre itself. Like it, it it's just one of the most interesting and just the character work that it does. And that's always the most important thing for mm-hmm. me with the, uh, with these movies is it's profound, man. Like I, you know, I, I did, I've, I have it somewhere in a box there, like blood sports first appearance and yeah, you like him well enough, but he's kind of a one-off character, but I left that movie and I loved, mm-hmm. loved, loved that character. And I'm hoping that Troy bought a few more of those Dark Tower figures so I can get a proper <laughs> Idris head <laughs> for the McFarlane. But uh, yeah, man. So there we are. B plus and an A, I guess that's. And if you listen to this podcast with any kind of uh, attention, you'll know that it's a pretty high recommend from us both. So mm-hmm. see it on HBO Max if uh, that's what you choose to do and you have the ability to subscribe or go see it in a theater. If uh, that's how you got to do it, but watch this movie any way you can, except via piracy. And yeah, uh, yeah here's hoping that we get some more. So, oh yeah, it's always fun breaking this stuff down and and having these conversations because I find I get more and more excited about mm-hmm. a lot of this too. And and I really hope that you guys enjoyed the film as much as we did. And we'd we'd love to hear more of what you guys thought about the film. Did you enjoy it? Do you agree with the rankings? What was your favorite part, favorite character? Did you love John Cena as much as I did up until that very moment? And if you'd like to let us know, you can always email us at nerdroom at gmail.com. You can find everything we do over the nerdroom.net. You can hit us up there as well. The hunt is real, and it's over on Instagram. We've been lagging a bit behind there, but guys, it's it's hunt weekend for me. I'm going to go up, I think, to see my our boy Dave up at Snap Collectibles and try to get back into some of that retro toy collecting. And like always, Twitter, 
that's that's where we spend a lot of our time. So if you want to have a conversation about the Suicide Squad upcoming things, like the Batman, Shang-Chi is on our doorstep, man. That's our next film we're going to be reviewing here. September 3rd or 4th or something to that effect, 5th maybe. We're going to be seeing Shang-Chi and breaking that film down. And we've got a lot to talk about in between as well. And we're shaking things up here in the Nerd Room as well. There's a lot of stuff percolating through our minds. September is a big focal point for us as we're going to start implementing some new content, maybe some changes. We'll see how things roll out here. But we're always, always evolving with the times and never staying stagnant. So, guys, I'm going to, I'm going to actually throw it to Carlos here to take us home. He, he led this episode as he does with all the reviews like the goddamn Batman he is. So, Carlos, walk us out of this one. Yeah, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And, you know, you'll probably get a little bit more Suicide Squad content as we get some reactions from the boys. Or maybe Tim's just had enough and decided to flip the switch on one of our co-hosts. <laughs> I don't know. He holds the keys. So, all that being said, for the Nerd Room, I'm Carlos. And I'm Peacemaker. <laughs> and we're out. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim, Troy, Sanjay, and Carlos on Twitter at TheNerdRM, TroyTheBoy87, Sanjabi, and CDN Caped Crusade R. For more content from The Nerd Room, check out TheNerdRoom.net. And don't forget to subscribe to The Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you plug in. Use the hashtag WeTheNerd to keep up with the latest from The Nerd Room on Instagram and Twitter.